This episode of Software Social is brought to you by Balsamic. Balsamic decided to support the Software Social community by donating their sponsored airtime to some of our listeners. This episode is sponsored by Get the Audience. Every entrepreneur has the same problem. Find out who their audience of their products or service is, what they talk about and need, and when to engage with them in a fruitful conversation. Get the Audience helps entrepreneurs to understand and develop their audience much easier than before. It's a web-based tool with a monthly or yearly subscription created by a bootstrap founder, Matthias Bolin. You can get Get the Audience at gettheaudience.com. Thanks again to Balsamic for generously sponsoring our listeners this way. If you'd like to receive a promo code for Balsamic, visit balsamic.com slash go slash software dash social. We are super excited to have a guest on today's podcast. We are joined today by Danielle Simpson, the co-founder of Feedback Panda. Hi, Colleen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Danielle. I am so excited to have you on today. Thank you for having me. So, so excited. So um, I want to give a a quick background on you and then we're going to dive right in. So Danielle is the co-founder of Feedback Panda. Um, And and how this came about is Danielle is a classically trained opera singer who moved to Berlin, and while she was singing, she started teaching English online. And part of that process for teaching the students is to provide them with feedback. And she and her partner, um, Arvid Kahl, who many of you probably know from Twitter, figured out that the process for this feedback could be much more efficient, um, and there was actually a software solution in here to make that easier for teachers. And so they launched Feedback Panda together, and then they sold Feedback Panda um, in 2019. And so I am so excited to have you here, Danielle, because I feel like there's so much um, for us to learn from from you and just so many different points, whether that's you know starting a company based on your own needs scaling that company, figuring out what other people need, um, even you know selling that company, and then what do you do after selling that company? There's so much in your story that I think really resonates with people, and so I'm so excited to hear your perspective on everything. Thanks. Yeah, it's uh, my privilege to be here and to share it with you. So my first question, you started Feedback Panda based on your own needs, and this is a recurring theme um, of our show. It's where Geocodio came from. It's where Colleen's simple file upload came from. It's where a lot of great bootstrap companies come from. And in those early days, it can be really hard to prioritize your different needs. And when you're solving something for yourself, you know, there's a million things that could be done. And so I'm really curious to hear more. Like, like when you first started it, how, how did you even figure out what you should work on and what you should work on next? So um, thank you so much for asking this question because it's definitely, you know, if you didn't bring it up, this was something I really wanted to share um, about how we prioritized work. In the beginning, it was really easy to divide the different work because Arvid was the programmer and, you know, I would have the ideas, I have the knowledge about what the teachers need, what I needed, so I could tell him what to build 
and then he would build it. And then, so we worked super closely um, in this kind of like feedback loop where he would build something, I would test it out, I would give him feedback, he'd iterate on that. And um, so before we had customers, super easy, <laughs> super easy to just kind of build a, a prototype of a product. And then about um, a year, no, sorry, about four months in when we actually had customers and before this like adrenaline of something needs to be done and you just are like on autopilot, you just figure out a way to do it. Um, we actually made this pretty expansive chart of 52 roles that we thought our company had. We're a company of two, but we got really specific about different departments, different positions in each department, and then what job, what responsibilities each of those, we'll call them people or positions had. So um, whenever we were kind of stuck for, okay, there's a million things that need to be done today, but what role hasn't seen some attention from us or what role kind of gets forgotten about because there's customer service is always something that's like super prominent because it's actually somebody on the other line that's wanting your attention. But um, so in that kind of um, part of the company for, you know, customer experience and customer success, of course, the person on the desk is getting a lot of attention. But what about... Um, you know, who's building the knowledge base? Is that getting a priority? Um, and then, you know, that's going to help the person on the customer desk. And so we got super uh, specific on these different roles and also who was going to be responsible for them, which was important that Arvid knew what he was responsible for. I knew what my responsibilities were. And, um, and so I think, Part of the, the issue with priority is that we don't always know what the work is. We don't always have this clear understanding of what is this role. I know I need to work on marketing, but like, what does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> like, so uh, getting really specific about what the marketing role is or, you know, the content writer or all of these different who's posting to Instagram, all of these different little jobs even were were little roles that our company had so we were very we had a very clear picture um visually to to consult to when uh things were getting a bit overwhelming then we could just look at this and see what needed to be done that's so fascinating i've i've never heard of anyone doing that for a two-person company i mean it's it's ingenious and and it sounds like as much as, as it is defining what the roles and, and tasks are, because um, I think that's a, a challenge I definitely face. I know a lot of other people face, too, is, you know, figuring out what even needs to be done. Um, you're also defining what that role isn't, right? Like you define 52 roles, but not 100 roles. Like there, you are you're scoping the company itself, it's, it sounds like, not just tasks. Absolutely. And then this also became um, kind of the, the structure of who do we want our first hires to be? You know, this role is taking up so much of our time. Is it time to bring somebody in? Of course, long story short, we never ended up hiring anyone. But, um, <laughs> you know, we had that layout, that structure so that we knew 
where we could possibly, you know, substitute ourselves out and, and put someone else in. That makes a ton of sense. So when you guys were this far along, were you both full time by this point? Not quite. So we did this uh, four months after launching this big, you know, 52 person company um, chart. But we went full time, I guess it was about 10 months, 10 months in. Let me just check my math. Yeah, it was about 10 months in when Arvid quit his uh, job and I uh, I had been scaling back on my own teaching. I was still teaching. Um, but then in February of 2018 was when I taught my last class. So you guys were still working other jobs and running your company while you were trying to prioritize these kind of 52 roles within your company. That sounds like a lot. Yeah, f- I mean, 52 roles sounds like a lot, uh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but I really think that once you actually have clarity on something, and like that's sometimes half the work is just understanding what the work is. So once we could really yes, be agreed. <laughs> so once we could really be intentional about the time um, that we had to spend on Feedback Panda, then I felt then it was pretty clear. You knew once you were spending time on Feedback Panda, then what job you were supposed to be doing. Yeah, I love that because you don't spend a ton of time spinning your wheels in this. You know, I'm like way in the beginning of this process and I have a list of what feels like hundreds of things to do. And the problem is like without a focus of what is this, to your point, what does marketing mean? Like what path, what what bandwidth do I have to go down that path and how do I do it? It's kind of like all over the place. So I kind of, I really actually love this idea of, of defining the work and defining the roles really specifically. And I should clarify, there were a few roles that we both said, I don't want anything to do with this. Like, um, I, do, I didn't want to have to do anything uh, tax reporting. I love bookkeeping. I, do, I didn't want to, um, you know, be responsible for anything to do with the government or the Finanzamt is what it's called in here in Germany. I, you know, really wanted to avoid that. Arvid is uh, also very happy to let somebody else do that. So that was a position in our company, we said, but really it was just our tax advisor <laughs> that we had working for us. And then um, and then also uh, bloggers were one of the first people that we um, contracted to do things for us because I uh, wanted to have some content on, on the website, wanted to have a blog, but... Um, I find the whole process of writing quite laborious. So <laughs> that was something I was happy to uh, have other people to do. You mentioned a couple of times how you would talk to the teacher community and you would talk to them on, on these different formats, whether that was Instagram or, or other places. And um, people talk a lot about choosing an audience. Actually, I think Arvid talks about this quite a bit on Twitter and might be writing a second book on this, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Audience first. Coming to you. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> and I think what, what's so interesting to this, um, to me, is that, you know, you didn't really you choose an audience. You you were the audience. And, and so 
I, I, I love this idea because, you know, we, we talk a lot about, about using customer um, empathy and, and you had, how do we use empathy for our customers and translate that into priorities and, and tasks and a successful business. And most of us naturally have, have at least some amount of empathy for ourselves. And so it's, um, you know, it, it's sort of straightforward to, to translate that into other people who are in a similar situation as ourselves. And it sounds like you were in that situation being so close to the English teacher community online. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I think also it has to be said that Arvid was seeing this as well through my work. Um, Even as a child, though, I remember looking at teaching as a profession and thinking, wow, these are people who put their heart and soul into their work and they will do anything at any hour to help their students succeed. Um, So immediately I felt when, you know, I had the idea that this could be something that could be shared to help other teachers. It felt like something we were compelled to do, like a way I really wanted to help an audience, you know, quote unquote, um, that was quite underserved and, and sometimes undervalued. I love how you mentioned that Arvid saw this too. And, and I think this is such a critical point because developers need to be near the user. They need to be able to interact with the user and understand them, not just as a user, but as a person. And, you know, Colleen, you've talked about how in your college engineering classes, there was not a lot of focus put on understanding the user and building empathy for the user. Um, And even still, there's so many companies that really... They either hesitate to put developers in front of users or they just think it's it's a, a waste of a developer's time. Um, but it's not. It's so incredibly powerful when you can get um, the person who is using a product in the same room with the developer. And, and, and can you just talk a little bit more about that? Like what, like what was the experience like for you seeing him learn about your community? Um, yeah, so uh, I think, of course, it started with me being the first user, the first customer of our product, but um, Arvid was also heavily involved with the customer service and having conversations with people. We had, um, at the very beginning, we used a small chat tool on the website and then eventually changed it over to Intercom, um, but we always had this direct line where we could talk to users um, who were on the app. And um, so at the beginning, it was mostly me leading through, leading them through just, uh, this is my idea for what we have to offer you. Um, You know, how does it match up with, you know, what you think we're offering uh, (laughs) this kind of conversations, but also um, those were kind of sales conversations as well. You know, like ex- having uh, to explaining what we were offering, and um, so I think he learned a lot of how to communicate with our customers through those uh, original conversations that I was having. But then he just jumped right in, and you know, had lots of conversations with teachers as well. And um, yeah, I mean, 
part of it is just who he is. I think that it, it came very natural to him. So it's hard for me to kind of like uh, pinpoint what he was doing. But, um, but I think definitely having that direct line of communication on the website where if there was something that teachers needed, a lot of feature requests would come in there and, you know, we would both have those conversations one-on-one, you know, with whoever was talking to us, but then we would come together and talk about them together. So um, he was very much a part of the community and the teachers just adored him um, because they were not far from a magician who could just make, you know, their wishes come true and, and help them with their teaching. I love this because I feel like just from this conversation we're having now, you were driven to create this product like as altruism because you really felt like it would it would help these people and improve their lives. And I feel like in the in engineering and in development, sometimes we're taught, not explicitly taught, but kind of internalized that like that's not how you make money, right? Like there's this focus of you make money this way. These are two different things. And I just love when someone can build a product that enriches people's lives and makes money. Makes me really happy. Yes. Yeah. Me right? too. Like it just, it's that whole like, yeah, it's the whole conscious capitalism thing. Like I, I think I like, you know, mentioned on episodes ago, the lapsed anarchist guide to building a great business, which is one of my favorite business books. But it, it also hammers down that point of like, you can approach business from an altruistic perspective, from a perspective of helping people rather than, you know, exploiting them and taking as much money from them as possible. Like you can run a business that that helps people and provides a living for you. And those two things can work together. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, it, it was also such a wonderful thing to have this direct conversation with customers, with people who, um, I have to think about all of the subscription fees that Arvid refunded or, you know, just gave grace periods for because people were having trouble making ends meet or, you know, were waiting on a support paycheck or whatever it was. He he really was about a human approach. It wasn't just numbers and, um, yeah, the, the bottom lines. It was always about serving another human being a human approach to business so I have a question about the early days you were your first customer and so it sounds like the two of you were really able to create a product you knew would be would well serve these teachers did you have any trouble finding customers or did you find that the teachers were so excited about it they just kind of showed up out of the woodwork (laughs) that's a nice image (laughs) it was it really was that way um you know I had been there was multiple communities on Facebook or you know in private spaces that the company hosted um where people were having problems just keeping up with the number of students the number of reports that we had to do um and developing systems to deal with this extra work that we had so, uh, so I was observing these different communities and how people communicated and, you know, just the dynamic in them. So when it came time that we were ready to actually share 
the product, um, I just went to the communities and shared that we had a product that could help them with some of these issues that you know, they were looking for solutions for. They were already looking for solutions. So it was quite welcome when I presented one. I want to go back to something you said a couple of minutes ago. You said when you were talking to customers, especially um, new customers who, who might be coming to you from, from one of these groups, that you would say something to the effect of, you know, here's what we think we do. Does that match what you think we do? And this struck me because it sounds like something that Colleen is going through right now. And I'm curious to hear you say a little bit more about that and 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 how those, you know, w- would that match up or, or would people think you were doing things differently? And how would that change your thinking about what your product did for people? Um, so I have to say that I was quite... <laughs> Uh, confident in my solution (laughs) or I was quite like um, I was confident that what I'd built worked for me so there would be others like me Um, I wasn't so in this really beginning phase where I was trying to build something that maybe like the the mass wanted of course this is always a really good idea I don't want to dig myself into any holes here because this is really important but um but it was also just about like getting this um idea bank for okay what kind of features we might want to add on in the future or um you know are people thinking about our product this way because this is the only thing that exists for them yet and now I can just like blow their minds with a new way of doing something. Uh, So that's a little bit, um, I won't judge myself there, but I think that's pretty confident (laughs) in what we built. Um, Yeah, so what was really interesting from those conversations was the um, features that we hadn't built in yet, the... most of the teachers really liked what we were offering and I was also pretty like not offended if it wasn't what they thought it should be. I understand like there's so many different human beings. We're all so different. If this isn't how you visualize feedback, the flow, your workflow, whatever, it was totally fine with me. Um, but there were some really golden ideas that came from early conversations and also staying involved in Facebook groups where people were talking about our product, um, saying, I I, I learn a lot just from kind of being a fly on the wall. I think that can also be super useful. Um, And one of the features that teachers kind of expected to be a part of our product was template sharing, feedback template sharing among teachers, um, because this was something that existed in like a Google sheet where people would just put in different templates that they had for different courses. So they kind of were hoping that would be a part of Feedback Panda's offering. And um, this was like a no brainer just with the stickiness of a template database. If you can up the whatever you're offering. Um, yeah, there was like a variable reward part of the business there where people could change out their templates. And um, so this was a really, really great feature that neither Arvid and I had thought of that came from observing the community, talking to teachers, 
getting their feedback about like how they might want it implemented and building it quite quickly. I mean, like I said, the teachers thought Arvid was a wizard and that's because he built out this feature, you know, in a month. Um, this like template database is what we called it. I, I, I love how that, you know, came from the conversations with the customers and it, it wasn't something that you guys, you know, had ever really occurred to you. But then, as you said, it was something that not only helped the teachers, but made your product stickier. And to what we were just saying, you know, that is something that had both an altruistic end result and also one that helped your business and made your product stickier for them because it was more valuable to them. Exactly. I want to fast forward a little bit. So you guys sold the company in 2019. And I guess, can you can you take us back there? Had you guys you intended to sell the company? We, um, I think it was always kind of an option in the back of our minds. Um, but, you know, we were two years in. We weren't really thinking about selling at that point. But we did build systems in the company that made sense to keep running it and, you know, made it efficient for us to stay a small team and keep running it. And this also happens to be what makes it very attractive to potential acquirers. So, um, so yeah, I think it was always an option for us. Like the door was open pretty well, but, um, but we didn't, we weren't looking for, for acquirers or anything like that at this point. And, you know, given your close connection to the community and how you had come out of the community, um, you know, I think people think about selling their company and they probably think more, uh, you know, um, about the paycheck that comes, um, but not so the other things that, that come out of that. And, and I'm curious how, if you can say more about how that impacted how you perceived your role in this community and, and to your users. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was, both Arvid and myself had kind of become almost like rock stars in this ESL community because this is a community of entrepreneurial teachers. So our success is also very inspirational to them and showing them what they could possibly do. Um, a lot of teachers had uh, teachers pay teacher shops. Uh, a lot of people were referring a lot of other teachers to these platforms. So these are really cool uh, group of teachers, very entrepreneurial. So um, when we sold, after we sold, it, I, I kind of, or I shouldn't say kind of, I very much felt disconnected with this community suddenly because I didn't feel like I could engage with them in the same way. I always was engaging with them as the representative from Feedback Panda. Um, and I was careful, going back to your previous question about whether we had thought about selling, I was always careful not to build too much of a brand around myself as the founder of Feedback Panda because I thought that would make it just more difficult to transition the company if I wasn't 
the CEO of the company anymore. So I was still hesitant of that, but it still happened because it's just such a wonderful, inspiring story to build, uh, to have a teacher, a fellow teacher build this company. So um, after we sold, I did feel like I lost that, um, that authentic way to engage with them because I didn't really feel like, like I could, I didn't feel like one of them anymore. That makes a lot of sense. And it, it sounds like that was really hard for you. Yeah, it was hard. Um, not, not the rock star part, but I think the hard part was, um, so much of what we woke up and did every day brought so much value to other people's lives. It was so gratifying and it was very clear how we were helping people. You know, still people would, you know, two years in, people would have just discovered Feedback Panda go to a Facebook group or write to us directly on intercom and just thank us. So, you know, teachers, um, we had wonderful, wonderful customers and very grateful customers. So I wasn't really prepared for how much I would mourn that, that just clear purpose. Just, you know, how you're helping people in the world today and it feels good. So, um, so after selling the company, even though I had read, you know, many, uh, the few blog posts actually that there are for bootstrapped companies that have sold and, and reading about people's experiences through, through the sale and afterward, you know, you kind of see, okay, yeah, there's going to be maybe this dip. So I, I'll be prepared because I know that's coming this little dip where you're not really sure what to do. And of course it helps if you know what you're going to do next. But even though I kind of knew it was coming, it still hit pretty hard. I did fall into this melancholy, I would call it. It's just where um, you're not quite sure what you're going to do next. And that kind of purpose for what was so clear, you know, every day, what you were waking up to do, to do good in the world, it kind of went away. So, so that was, uh, that was strong last year, I would say. It's interesting because I think what you have achieved is the goal of a lot of founders, but the more founders I talk to who have actually successfully exited, share similar feelings as yours is it's they they had so much purpose and they exited it in a way they wanted to but it's not like life is suddenly perfect it's it's you're starting over and what do you do now and it's just really interesting to hear that because there's so much you know rainbows and sunshine surrounding most of people most of these people's stories like most people just want to tell you the good parts and you don't hear a lot about like everything else that comes with that and yeah absolutely I think there was also a lot of celebrations and feeling proud of ourselves and of course there was um yeah just a feeling of accomplishment um and like we had left something good in the world even though we weren't you know steering the ship anymore um it it was also it was kind of like this um uh where you kind of oscillate 
in between different states where you're just, you can't believe this happened and then you're very proud and then you're like, oh my gosh, what am I gonna do next? Um, what, what am I gonna do while I'm not doing anything kind of <laughs> feelings? Um, but I, I still do, even though this really intense melancholy came, I still feel it was the right decision. And I know we sold for the right decision, uh, for the right reasons as well. Um, because I, I, even though I loved helping the teachers, it felt like that phase was done for me. Like I was ready to move on to something else. Um, but I, I also just think I look back at other experiences I've had, whether it was coming off of a show run, you know, doing recitals or, or doing shows, and you have all of this um, excitement and all of these positive emotions that are associated with this um, performance. And then after the performance uh, is over, then you go through this like a lull. <laughs> it's like you really um, go on the other side of the wave. And so, uh, it makes total sense now, looking, you know, hindsight. Um, and uh, I think the the bigger and more gratifying our experiences are, maybe the more intense that wave on the bottom end is going to be, but it also comes back up again. And, and that's what I keep feeling. Like, now I'm... I'm in the building stage. I'm in the, okay, I'm clearing out uh, any blocks, anything that's going to hold me back. Next time, all the things that I've learned from running Feedback Panda. Um, and I'm like riding the wave up again. So um, sometimes I feel when we're in that low, we're scared that it might last forever. Or we're scared that it's just got us and it's going to hold us down. But, um, but... Yeah, I, I think there's work that we can do and, you know, we see the other side coming out. I just love the way you put that and, and how you put that in perspective of other experience. Like, it's really beautiful how you phrase that. And, you know, you're reminding me of something one of our previous guests, um, Alex Hillman, said a couple of months ago. He tweeted out, almost every person I've ever met who sold their company needs therapy. That's not snark. I genuinely believe it should be part of the package. Money doesn't overwrite the grief that comes out of founder exits. Absolutely. Where is this? I need to put that somewhere where I can it's remind Twitter, myself. And, and I, I think that, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. That's so wonderful. And I think I, I really appreciate hearing somebody else sharing that experience. Because a, a lot of what keeps us down in that uh, low point is also just shaming ourselves for having these negative feelings out of something so positive. So, um, yeah, there's liberation in knowing that other people have been there before. Absolutely. And, and you, you talked about how you feel like you're on the other side of that curve now. And so I, I, I'm curious, what's next? Well, I don't really know. <laughs> That's something I'm getting more comfortable saying. Um, yeah, I, I'm doing the work. 
is what I say. I'm doing the work, which means um, making a practice of things that are important to me and clearing away this kind of negative voice that tells you that you're not enough or that what you want to work on isn't really worthy of your time. Um, so unlike in other years, um, I'm actually approaching this kind of work, um, getting to know myself, getting creative. Uh, I'm approaching this like I would like as a college course or as starting a company, you know, diligently with routine, with a schedule, making that a big priority for me because um, I think in this past year where I did feel lost, um, I kind of wanted to skip this phase where you skip to the, I already have a product, I already know what I want to work on. Um, okay, let's get talking to people and start building something. Um, but actually, the work that comes before that is really important. And that's kind of where the magic happens, where you can actually come up with um, whatever it's going to be. And I'm not sure really what that looks like, if it looks like another SaaS or it looks like um, putting out an album or, you know, like painting. I'm a terrible painter. I would never be painting, but, you know, whatever that could look like. Um, I'm really saying that that has value, that doing that kind of work, getting to know myself and what I want to do next is is of value. And I'm not sure how long this phase will last, but uh, I think it's an important one. I admire you for sitting in your discomfort and <laughs> rather than running away from it, you're exploring it and, and seeing what it has to teach you. And, and in that discomfort, you seeing so much confidence in you and in, in how you talk about that and and how this this period for you even though you don't know what is what's going to come what strikes me is those outcomes you talked about as possibilities all of those are run by you you have a founder's perspective now you you know that you can do it you know that you can run a company or launch an album which I'm sure is just as complicated and time-consuming as launching a company is. Oh absolutely. Um, you believe you can do it now and you're you know we, we, we talk about how Colleen for a long time was, was looking for a product to build and I think we described that on more than one occasion as sort of wandering through the woods and Colleen finally emerging from the woods and having <laughs> a product and but you're not wandering. You're just sort of sitting there meditating in the woods and just allowing yourself to be consumed by that. But knowing that when you leave, you will not just be walking out. You will be leading your own way out and, and, and building your own future and, and, and not being reliant on other people for that. And that's just incredible and, and, and so admirable. Thank you. Thanks. I think... Um that kind of stillness, I guess I, I could call it too. I, I like this idea of just meditating in the woods. Um, it takes a lot of trust to trust that there will be something 
if I put in the work, if I put in the hours, um, then something will emerge. And so, um, yeah, I think it's, it's about trust. Can I ask, what does that actually look like? Like, I don't know how to sit in discomfort very well. So <laughs> like what, when you say like put in the app, like what are you actually doing? Um, so I have lots of quirky habits that, um, that I think are quite meaningful and actually help. A lot of the work is like clearing away the BS, the BS like voice in our head that tells us that we can't do what we want to do. And and some people it's like really strong and other people, you know, it's like very small. And so they don't really have to do that much work. (laughs) But um, for me, it's like setting healthy routines, um, waking up every morning. And I, I do this practice called morning pages. Um, It's actually just like stream of consciousness writing. And that helps clear away uh, negative voices that, that can sometimes inhibit you. Um, and so I do that every morning. I have a yoga practice that is um, very important. <laughs> I notice when I don't do it, it's always when you haven't done the, the different practices that you start to notice. But then it's also about not waiting until you feel inspired to actually create something. Like, oh, I have a great product idea. Let's start... Um, I don't know, what's the first thing we do? Buy a domain or like check Instagram to see if the, <laughs> the uh, <laughs> handle is available. Um, but actually just like, I don't know, if you're a writer, just sit down in front of the computer and write something every day. If you want to make an album, sit at your piano or whatever in front of the computer and like just dedicate time to actually doing those things. And then I think if you create that practice of already creating, then then you create the space to become inspired, right? It's not waiting for the inspiration and then I'll do the work. It's I'm going to, I'm going to do the work and then um, maybe I'll be inspired in the middle of it. So I, I'm thinking about like a lot of creative um work like designing things like this like don't wait for a job just start building your portfolio and then maybe a job will come from that or you know um yeah I think I think there's many different ways it's just like the artistic ones that are coming to mind Colleen that reminds me of when you like decided that you were going to be serious about trying to build your own company and get out of consulting you designated one day a week for your side projects. And you didn't necessarily know what those projects were going to be, but you're like, Friday is my day. And that's the day that stuff is going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. And it made a huge difference. And, you know, this, this first product came out of something that I wanted myself. And I still don't know if it's going to work out if anyone else wants it. But I think to your point, Danielle, like, I did something and that was better. I'm someone who gets stuck reading and reading about how to do things. Like I just read about how to do them, but sometimes, and it's hard for me to to pull out from like just reading to actually doing. So once I dedicated more time to just doing and tried to set aside some of my perfectionism tendencies, I made a lot more progress. Absolutely. What you said about 
like self and self-worth really touched a chord in me. I have a post-it I keep on my desk that says everything you want is on the other side of fear. And like, I just really struggle with like letting go of the BS, like you were just saying. And it's just weird. Like sometimes I think for me, my inability to get out of my own way. So I love this, this concept of like making space and kind of sitting in that discomfort to, to sort it out. I love that. That's a great post-it. And it's, it's nice if you have these little things that you uh, can be helpful reminders to keep them close, keep them in a space where um, they remind you or inspire you. You know, what you said about the post-it note, uh, was it everything you want is on the other side of fear? Is that right? That's right. That's what I wrote. I love that. I think there's there's people have so much fear. I have so much fear. Um, and, and, you know, to what Danielle is doing in such an amazing way of sitting with the discomfort and allowing it to be there. I think if we allow the fear to be there, that what we've built isn't good enough or that a competitor is just going to come in and crush us and all of this will be for nothing or whatever that is. Um, we, we have to face it rather than, because if we run, run from it, we, we haven't built anything. I love that. It's such a hard, but important lesson to learn. Danielle, it was so amazing um, having you with us today. Um, if people want to hear more about the story of Feedback Panda, um, your partner Arvid Call wrote a book called Zero to Sold. Um, he's also writing a new book um, called Audience First. Um, but you are on Twitter as well. Um, and we will put a link in the show notes to your Twitter account. Awesome. Yeah, I'm at Simpson Danny K D A N I k on twitter and instagram thank you so much for having me it's been such a privilege and a pleasure to speak with you both that's going to wrap up this week's episode of the software social podcast if you enjoyed our podcast we would love it if you would leave us a review you can also find us on twitter at software pod huge thanks to all of our listeners who've become software socialites and support our show chris from chipper ci the daringly handsome Kevin Griffin, and Mike from Gently Used Domains, who has a nice personality, Dave from Recut, Max of Online or Not, Stefan from Talk to Stefan, Brendan Andrade of Brightbits, Team Tuple, Alex Hillman from The Tiny MBA, Rami from Hovercode and Rocket Gems, Jane and Benedict from UserList, Kendall Morgan, Ruben Gomez of Signwell, Corey Haynes of Swipewell, Mike Wade of Crowd Sentry. Nate Ritter of Roomsteals, Anna Mast of SubscribeSense, Jeff Roberts from Outsetta, Justin Jackson, MegaMaker, Jack Ellis and Paul Jarvis from Fathom Analytics, Matthew from Appointment Reminder, Andrew Culver at Bullet Train, John Coster, Alex of Corso Systems, Richard from Stunning, Josh the Annoyingly Pragmatic Founder, Ben from ConsentKit, John from Credo and Editor Ninja, Cam Sloan, Michael Copper of Nusi Proposals, Chris from URL Box, Callie of Toslet, Greg Park from Trait Lab, Adam from Rails Autoscale, Lana and Alex from Recapsi, Joe Mazzalotti of RailsDevs.com, Proud Mama from Applenet LLC, Anna from Cradle, Monsef from Ruby on Mac, Steve of Be Inclusive, Simon Bennett of Snapshooter Backups, Josh Smith of Keyhero.io, Jesper Christensen of Form Backend, Matthew of Works Cited, Chris of JetBoost.io, Daryl Shannon of Docomatic, 
Larabelle's, a community for Larabelle developers underrepresented due to their gender. Brendan from Feederloop, Pascal from Sharpen.Page, Lynn Romick from Convini, Arvid Call, James Sowers from Castaway.fm, Jessica Malnick, Damian Moore of Audio Audit Podcast Checker, Eldon from Nodal Studios, Mitchell Davis from RecruitKit.